You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Wednesdays are for W's, and we're talking about a W for the Cincinnati Bengals. We're talking about an opponent ahead, stat of the week, all that kind of stuff here on the Orange and Black Insider Bengals podcast coming at you live Wednesday night. Or if you're listening after the fact, that's cool too. Appreciate you listening, however you are doing so. And I'm Anthony Cazenza, joined by John, the brain, cheering John. What's going on, my man? Uh, Big, big win for the Bengals. I called it, I don't think it was, I don't know if I wanted to call it season saving, but I said season changing potentially, and not just because of momentum, but uh, how they won and how they adapted. That's that, that was kind of my take. I'm anxious to hear yours, but uh, yeah, man, we're talking about a W. We like that. I think saving, season saving is very accurate. Two and four sounds awful. Like honestly, It does. It really um, does. I don't have the stats in front of me about how many two and four teams actually make the playoffs, but I can't imagine it's a high number. But great weekend, I guess. Um, ha- happy that everyone who went down to New Orleans is back home, safe and sound. I'm sure it was a it was a blast down there. I haven't been since I was since I was a wee lad, but maybe next time the Burrow and Chase go down to go down to the Big Easy, I'll make that trip. Look a lot. Look a lot of I have I have never been, and this was one of the ones I had circled on my calendar and. For a variety of reasons, I could not make the trip, unfortunately, trying to figure out one of these or a couple of these going forward uh, for me to get get to one of these. But um, that was one that I had circled and I just couldn't get there. Regardless, it looked like a great time and a hell of a game. The Bengals come back and beat the Saints 30 to 26. I think, John, they didn't have the lead until under two minutes, right? Or right around two minutes uh, left in the game. They were playing catch up all day. And then finally just kind of chipped away, chipped away, chipped away. And then, um, you know, the Bengals did their thing. Chase and Burrow did their thing in their building and uh, made enough plays to get to get through it here. What at what point did you see a point in the game that you were like, wow, this is this is the critical point? Or was there a facet of the game where you're like, this is where this game was won or lost for the Bengals and, and or the Saints? I'll tell you what, I feel like <laughs> the first drive out of the second half. Um, Bengals needed to reset defensively. They were down six. They couldn't stop the run to save their life. And the Saints had three consecutive penalties on third down. And I'm like, the yeah. Bengals cannot get off the field. The Saints are giving them every single chance to do so. And is is this going to happen or is this not going to happen? And Andy Dalton like runs for like 40 yards, gets first, and it gets called back again. I'm like, all right, just well, get whole, off the field, yeah. right? Like, if you can get off the field and score a touchdown because I think at that point the offense had confidence in what they were doing. Like the game can completely change. 
and they couldn't. Like Trey Hendrickson has a terrible roughing the passer call is something that he should not have done, regardless if it was soft or not. And like at that point, it kind of felt like I don't know, it was just not gonna go their way towards that second half. And they hold them to a field goal because that's what the Bengals defense does. They don't give up touchdowns in the second half, and they just came away with the win. And I'm really happy that we had those moments of Joe Burrow escaping pressure and having those vintage moments and obviously Chase having two touchdowns. I'm glad those moments came in a win because if it didn't, we're looking at a completely different outlook of this season. And Anthony, it was just like the first time, I think, this year definitely that you not only had the offense like picking up for the slack that the defense had, but like last year when you had times when you fell behind and you came back and your playmakers made plays, we hadn't seen that from them this year. Like they've lost three games all by last second field goals because they just couldn't finish. They couldn't finish that comeback attempt, whether the defense gave up once many plays at the end or their offense just couldn't put together one final drive. And this time it was the exact opposite. And I wasn't sure that was going to happen, but sure enough, it didn't. Maybe sometimes sometimes the vibes are just too immaculate. That this that was what I said going into this game. Like I'm just going with the vibes. I'm going with the reunion back in New Orleans, the homecoming and everything, and they just rose to the occasion. They did. And my my critical point of the game for me was that same drive that you're referencing, the third and twenty-five, and and then the drive prior to that. The Bengals didn't have the ball for almost an entire game quarter. Uh, if when you go into they, they took about six minutes on the drive right before half, and then the Bengals technically got the ball on a kickoff, and then it was just okay, run into halftime. Uh, and then the Saints got the ball at half again and took up another almost eight minutes there. So they they almost had the ball for an entire quarter and kept Joe Burrow and Jamar Chase off the field. So that was a critical thing that they wanted to do. And what did they net out of it, John? Six points, 28 plays almost 15 minutes of game clock and somehow they netted two field goals out of those two drives. And that to me is where in a way, I mean, yeah, the chase chase extending the play just for 60 yards and a touchdown and, you know, Evan McPherson kicking a big 52 yarder late, all of that's important, but to get out of those drives with just six points given up 28 plays in total, almost a full quarter to me, that's like, Wow, I can't, I can't, for all of the the good things the defense have done, has done this year and for all of the bad things that they did on this particular week, that to me was, was stood out where I just went, I, I can't believe that sequence of events for the Saints it, right there. It's kind of one of my biggest takeaways from this week because that's going to be the, t- that was, that has been the talking point so far. Like, is this defense trending the wrong way now that the offense is finding itself? Are injuries just catching up? to that side of the ball and can they stop the run and obviously giving up 160 whatever yards in the first half is not good even if it is Alvin Kamara and and Taysom Hill and they they kind of do that to whoever goes up against them but I feel like the defense really did settle down in the second half and that's obviously important you kept that second half touchdown list streak alive but I really didn't feel like in the second half they were really ever overmatched like they just made a couple mistakes here and there Eli Apple definitely didn't have his best game there, but I, I feel like there was enough positive things in the second half where you can kind of just take your collective breath and say this defense is not completely losing its grip on reality just yet. Now, granted, you have to weigh in the fact that the Saints were down what three wide receivers in this game. They had they had Alvin Kamara. They still have a decent offensive line, but you still have to worry about like how they they got overmatched so quickly. And to, to be fair, like some of those a lot of those rushing yards in the first half came off of chunk plays, came off of just really well executed and designed reverses and sweeps and just kick, kick outs to the outside against 
uh, the Bengals defense that happened to be man coverage in those situations. So it wasn't always just consistently 10, 8, 11, 12 yards down the gut every single time. And it wasn't just them just toying with the Bengals' lack of, of defensive tackle depth. I think there were more positives to be taken away in the second half where it's like, okay, we can all calm down and say that this defense is not completely just falling apart. Still haven't given up a defensive touchdown in the second half through the first six games there. That's an impressive stat. One of the things that was also impressive, and we're going to talk a little bit more about what you were talking about in terms of, you know, who they played this week, who was out of the lineup. That's a good, it's a good point for our kind of, I don't know if it's a state your case or whatever it is in the middle here, but we've got another segment after we talk about this game that I think that'll be appropriate to, to tack on there. But what's been noted, it's, it's been a, a depending on your definition of a slow evolution or a slow adaptation on offense, you've kind of started to see things change up a bit. You started some seeing some things against the Jets. You saw some more, um, you know, Miami, the Jets, and then, you know, you've got uh, – you saw some of these changes against the Ravens, and now I think we saw a lot of differences on offense, a lot of RPO stuff, um, runs out of RPO looks, and then you saw, you know, again, not – trying to force the ball downfield very often on these, you know, deep shots. There weren't many opportunities to do that. It was let's get controlled passing. Let's get the ball out and let's get guys like Jamar chase to do yards after the catch stuff, instead of having him try and blow by corners on the boundary and hit him on the fly for 40 yards. It's, it's a lot different, but it was highly effective this week. And I guess it's kind of a two part, question and or getting your comments on it number one what you what you thought of this adaptation by the Bengals offense this this continuing adaptation from the past couple of weeks but also is what we saw this this week going to be the new norm for the Bengals offense and if so is it going to be as effective as some of the you know the high octane stuff that we saw late last season when this team really hit its stride so I think it's important how Burroughs said, I think we've found out who we are. I think we know who we are at this point. And when he said that, coupled with comments of Zach and I think Joe uh, this week saying that it's not always going to look the same. It, it depends on what defense that they're going up against. Like sometimes they could they could be under center and more of a smash mouth type of, of scheme that they're going to deploy. But I think this is the base. I think being in shotgun, operating out of shotgun with both phases – of your offense it's where they're most comfortable it's where their personnel lines up most with what they're good at and it's almost a coincidence to me that they were in the superdome it's almost like joe brady was in the Bengals press box kind of operating it because that it looked like the lsu offense the lsu offense was never under center like that was the passing part of what this offense was trying to be earlier in the season where they're trying to marry this shotgun spread offense in the passing game with an under center wide zone running game. And now they are completely full shifted towards just shotgun and having just uh, gap schemes out of, yep. out of the run game. You had eight runs in this game. Seven of them were successful out of Jim Mixon. They said that they called more runs um, originally in the huddle, but then Burrow checked passes just because the Saints were just giving them those soft looks and coverage and knowing that you're going to have space underneath to get the ball to chase or, Tyler Boyd on option routes, or even T. Higgins, who was working on an 85% angle, ankle, I believe is what he said. So definite signs of progress and just a, a clear direction of where they wanted to go. And, and it pr proved worthwhile that when you have both your passing game and running game kind of merged into one similar looking metamorphosis, 
it keeps the defense on its toes. And this was kind of what we saw from last week against the Ravens, where the running game was working because the Ravens were giving them space to operate those types of looks, and it continued to work this time. And as soon as the run game continued to progress and progress in this game, even though they didn't go to that much, you saw the Saints kind of creep up a little bit, and that's where those explosive plays went. It wasn't just Joe forcing the ball to Jamar just to get the ball in his hands as quick as possible. They were timed pretty well, and they gave him the space to make those plays, and you had a quick out. Um, in the third quarter, that led to a 26-yard explosive play. wasn't just over the top. Like That's also how explosive plays can happen, yards after catch. And then at the very end of the game, when you just had that one-on-one opportunity down the sideline, the ball got out of Joe Burrow's hands pretty quickly right to Jamar Chase, and Jamar Chase did Jamar Chase things. So I think the execution was much better than what we've seen in recent weeks, but it was also the timing of those calls that improved as well. And that came from, I think, just a clear and direct path of what they wanted to do in this game, which is... 52 out of 54 plays in shotgun. 52 out of 54 in shotgun. And the other element to it, John, I mean, I think I'd have to go back and look at my math, but I think I had read that of Joe Mixon's 12 touches, um, eight rushes, four catches, I want to say about 50% of all of his plays went for first downs this week. And, um, you know, I, when you, when you look at that, that may or may not pop out at you as a, a gaudy stat, but that, I mean, based on where things w- have been in the run game and based on what they have not been able to do in the run game, getting so much more positive yardage and, and the other plays that were not netting first downs were largely still positive gains, right? Positive gains on first downs, putting you in, in much more manageable position you know, in later downs and further in drives rather than being in a second and 12 hole, being in a third and 11 type of hole. I mean, Bengals face their share of of tough situations, but having uh, the ability to just kind of get positive yardage for once on the ground and changing that really kind of, uh, here you go, you've got 30 points instead of scoring 17, 20. I mean, it, it makes a big difference on finishing drives. And oh, by the way, the Bengals were also much better in the red zone and goal line areas this week than they were in previous weeks, opting for just one field goal as opposed to, you know, relying on McPherson to hit two, three, four of those, like has been the case in the postseason and in recent weeks. So I like how you kind of set me up there because the stat of the week that I wanted to to get to involves precisely what you were talking about the lack of negative plays and keeping the offense kind of on track 30 points is not the most that we've seen in the Zach Taylor era like they've they've popped off a handful of times and got close to 40 points as well but I think most people kind of recognize that this is one of the best offensive performances that we've seen definitely this year but also just in terms of consistency and I think the eye test kind of validates what the numbers say in this game against the Saints was the most successful in terms of early down success rate. Now, what is success rate? Success rate is how many, the percentage of your plays that end up in a positive EPA outcome. So essentially Mm -hmm. not having those one yard gains on first and 10, not having those three yard gains on second and 12, right? Keeping ahead of the chain so you're in manageable situations. Like there were multiple drives in this game where they barely even had third downs. Like in the second half, some of their scoring drives, they were converting first downs and first down. They were converting first downs on second down. They were always making sure that they were having generating positive plays. In this game, on first and second down, 
they had a 59% success rate or 58% success rate. They were 59% successful, including third downs. Both of those percentages are the highest in the Zach Taylor era. You want, you want to know what games kind of came close? There's only one game that came close last year, and that was against the Steelers at home. I was going to say blew, Pittsburgh, yeah. yeah when they yeah. blew them out, when they barely had negative plays. But the other three examples actually came from 2020, and one of them didn't even have Joe Burrow in the game. That Week 16 game against the Texans with Brandon Allen at quarterback, uh-huh, they had a 55% yeah, yeah. success rate in that game. Week 7 against the Browns when they lost at the final seconds and when Carlos Dunlap and Lou Narumo kind of went out on the sidelines, they had a 57% success rate in that game. And then Week 4 that year against the Jaguars, their first win in the Joe Burrow, they had 52% success rate and 57 early early downs. But making sure that you're avoiding negative plays, like that's been what their MO has been throughout the first six weeks here. And that's what was the biggest problem for them in weeks one and two when they kept falling behind the chains. But now we're seeing the difference in making sure that you're ahead of schedule and you can keep that playbook open. And once you, once you have that, then you have playmakers who can execute at a high level, you get positive results. Interesting stuff for stat of the week. I, I'm glad I, I teed that up for you. That was, yeah, that was nice you. there. Uh, good work and good research on that, John. Yeah. I mean, and, and again, you could just, you could see it. You could tell, Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's just when, when it, it, the difference it made throughout a, an entire drive, getting those positive yards on initial downs, early downs, and on run plays in general, when they just weren't really getting that throughout the, you know, throughout the, the course of this year, it just made a big difference. And, um, you know, the other thing too, that this difference in run scheme and the difference in the passing passing style that they are putting out there, John, it it seems as if it's confidence building. I mean, it's one of those things where it's not just like, Hey, you know, we're just going to take with it, what they give us. And we'll, it's not like settling what it, what it feels more like is mixing on these runs on these inside runs, these inside gap runs. These are, there's a lot more decisiveness it feels like than there is on some of these other wide zone type of runs. There is a lot more um, of, of a rhythm building type of situation with Burrow and his receivers early, you know, getting the guys, getting to, you know, some reliable receivers, Boyd, Hurst underneath. And then, you know, you get the the big plays from your other wide receivers, Higgins and Chase yards after catch stuff. So to me, that's, that's what I like about this change. It may not be as flashy. It may not be as sexy as some of the stuff we saw last year, but it's effective and it's what they needed to do based on what defenses are showing them and giving them in terms of looks. I think the confidence point is a good point because even in this game, like I don't think the offensive line played like particularly perfect by any means. There were still some Mm -hmm. rough moments early in the game and even, even late in the game, like Burrow had to create some magic out of nothing because there was some early pressure that was, you know, kind of brought up to him. But I feel like, because of the success that they had throughout the game, there was never a time when, you know, Burrow specifically, but when no one really froze, like there was never those moments where even when things went bad, there wasn't like, there wasn't a panic, I I would say. And that does come from the fact that they barely had any third and longs, but I feel like this team managed the pressure very well. And I think it was one of Burrow's best games in, you know, evading and managing and manipulating pressure as well. Like Mm -hmm. it's not just, that that magic play that he made on third and three or you know the the scramble touchdown like I, th- I feel like he managed the pressure in his face very well and took advantage of when he had several clean pockets in this game too so I feel like just him in that type of offense in that scheme where he has complete total a- autonomy 
over what what he sees and the fact that he's not in situations that he's less comfortable with like at this point I I don't think we're going to see him with play action under center unless it's like the once in a in a lifetime type of bootleg type thing when you're really trying to get the defense to bite like I feel like this type of offense is where he's most comfortable with and when you establish that comfortability over the course of now hopefully weeks on weeks on weeks like he will start to just be more just well more efficient into where the Bengals actually need him to be. Yeah. And I, I, I wonder about that because it's like, you know, is that just because he ran some of that, you know, the spread, the, the five wide, you know, that, that kind of look often at LSU, or is it almost a field vision type of thing, standing yeah. back there and, and seeing what the defense is actually giving you? It's probably a bit of both. I'd love to get your, your thoughts on that. But I mean, when I think about that, I, I would assume that, I mean, obviously, that's just a type of style that he's run for a handful of years now with with both the Tigers and the Bengals. But I just also feel like, you know, as you take that those handful of steps back from the center, you're in shotgun and you're kind of reading the lay of the land, so to speak. And then, you know, you've got your weapons out there. I I, I just wonder if that's just his preferred method of of playing quarterback where he can just really see everything that's that's laid out in front of him. Yeah, it's just what he's used to, I think, at this point. Like, it's what it's what worked at LSU, and it's clearly shown to have worked at the professional level, too. Yep. And I think it's worth noting that, you know, the Saints didn't really try to try to press the Bengals that much. There were a few examples where Chase was, like, an ox on those slants, and he just kind of mauled his way through. <laughs> and and yeah. that's that's the benefit of having a Jamar Chase. And I think a fully healthy Teagans would be able to su- succeed in those positions as well. But the Saints gave them a lot of opportunities to just run those quick slants and just to have a lot of space for them to work, which is why I believe a lot of those plays ended up being as effective as they were. So I think they have the right idea that not every defense is going to be the exact carbon copy. Same. Like obviously there are tendencies of them facing too high coverages and the saints weren't necessarily different in that regard, but how they play their corners, how they play their, their zones towards the outside, like that is always going to change and they're going to have to be, um, adaptive in that process as well. So kudos to them for realizing that, but also shout out to Zach for just cultivating a game plan that definitely worked and he stuck to it. It it did. And just some other news and notes before we, we move on here. Um, Logan Wilson, uh, he hurt his shoulder. It was the one that the, he had the procedure on. Um, Zach said earlier this week that he was kind of a day-to-day monitoring and they're they're trying to learn more about that and how severe I think there's they're being uber careful about that because it was the shoulder that he had a procedure done on um and then of course you lost Josh Tupo he is in a boot the diagnosis well I don't know if diagnosis is the right word but the uh analysis by by Zach Taylor is that he is quote week to week um and so now the Bengals are have BJ Hill Jay Tufele, uh, who, by the way, Jay Tufele had a couple of nice plays last week. Um, good for him. And, John, you did a nice weekly lineman up on that on CincyJungle.com, showing some of the things he did. But um, now they've called up Joe Bocci, right? Uh, so the Bengals are doing a little bit of mix and match, dealing with a little bit more, a few more injuries at this point in the season than they did last season. Granted, both T. Higgins and Logan Wilson had injuries last year as well. Uh, and we're in and out of the lineup, and that's kind of the case right now. But still, seemingly, especially with Reader out, more injuries to deal with this year than last year. <laughs> it was so funny to me because, like, right um, when Wilson was injured, you're thinking, oh, man, it's probably that shoulder because that's where it looks like he's kind of ho- holding and, like, favoring it. 
And then right after the game, there was a report that they, they're fearing that he re-injured the shoulder. Then it came out that he did re-injure the shoulder. And then Jeremy Fowler reported that hey, it's not that serious. He's only going to be out two to five weeks. And then 30 minutes later, Zach walks up to the press conference and says, yeah, he's day-to-day. So yeah, he, it's we're, like, we're not we're, we're not ruling him out. Like, which, what? Which, which one? Which one is it? Yeah, yeah. I, I would not expect him to play this week at all. Like, I, I don't think that would be even smart just just to just give him a week just to see where it is. But I'm not the coach. I'm not I'm not the doctor in this regard. So if he's good to play, he's good to play. But I don't know. I, I wouldn't risk it. Yeah, and that's uh, we'll talk we'll talk about the Falcons game in just a little bit here. But that is um, a, a little bit of a precarious situation for the Bengals because the Falcons like they've got a running quarterback. They like to do some of the similar things that the Saints like to do and a lot of kind of gadget runs and whatnot. So um, they will need as many able tacklers as possible on the field to avoid a potential 230-yard rushing day, again, from the opposition. But uh, we'll have to kind of see how the week progresses to see how some of these guys come back in the lineup. But, I mean, no Tupo and no Reader. You got two huge run stoppers that are not in your lineup in the middle of that defense there. That hurts. Yeah, I mean, at this point, they have three healthy defensive tackles on the team. And like you said, shout out to J2 Faley, your your fellow Trojan, who was just really dominant in a position they never really played before. Like, he he really showed out as a nose tackle in this game when they mm-hmm. needed him because they don't have a nose tackle on the roster. I, I still wouldn't consider him that guy. They have technically three three techniques, and they might have to call up Tyler Shelvin just to give them a, a body there. But if he needs to play nose, like he, he might be their guy if they want to keep B.J. Hill at three-tech. But they're definitely light there, and I don't think they can enter a game with just three healthy defensive tackles. Tufele season. I love it. All right, let's get to – I don't know if this is a – we've got an announcement coming up later that we're pretty excited about. We've got some Bengals trivia at the end of the show as well. We'll try and do a giveaway with that. Um, but – uh, we also have to talk about the Falcons before we do, though, John, we have I don't know. Is this is this a state your case? I guess we'll call it a state your case. All right. Share your share your graph you got here, John, if you if you have it up, because we want to talk about the three and three teams. And this is a really, really good topic because. Number one, there are a lot of three and three teams. And number two, the it seems as if, yeah, there are a couple of really good teams, but there are also some some a lot of mediocre teams and then some not so great teams. But even some of the ones in the mediocre category in this three and three category, including the Bengals, are still, you know, looked at as pretty good teams. Now you have a chart here and obviously you've got some columns and some colors and whatnot. Not everybody can see this because some, some of our audience listens to the audio side and they're not seeing this visual. So if you could, John, would you mind just kind of, uh, I don't know, kind of just going over what you got here and, and, uh, I mean, you don't have to spend an exorbitant amount of time, I guess, but just kind of tell us what you got in front of us here with this, with this chart. No, like you said, the season has been fascinating to me, not just because of the teams that are have surprised us and the teams that have um, disappointed us, but like th- this middle class in the NFL is very is very fascinating to me because you have a wide variety of style of teams, of quality of teams that end up kind of in the middle of the pack. And I've noticed some power rankings where 
you have the Bengals as a bona fide top 10 team, despite their record of being three and three. And is that an indi- is that an indication of where the Bengals are trending? Or is that just an indictment on the lack of quality of other teams that share the record? So right now there are three, t- there are 11 teams, excuse me, with a three and three record or three, two and one, three, two and one being the Colts, but they tie yeah. the Texans. So Way I'm to muddy the water. That. I'm not going to count that tie as a win. That tie is definitely a loss in, in my personal record book. So I wanted to take a look at what the metrics, what the numbers say about these 11 teams and kind of how the Bengals stack up here. So we have three categories, metrics, if you will, that kind of rank these teams from like 1 to 32. So we have weighted DVOA, which is football outsiders um, d- determined uh, over determined overvalue average i've definitely muddied that up but essentially it's measuring it's measuring overall efficiency in a team and the weighted part says that the the games you played earlier in the season they don't matter as much as what you've done for me lately so that kind of benefits the Bengals Mm. and their lack of fast start right they're terrible weeks one and two so they're not really penalized that much for that um naya value is adjusted net yards per attempt uh, overall value that's taking account of your adjusted net yards per attempt on offense and how much you allow on defense in terms of uh, limiting the passing game. So it's essentially taking a, a conglomeration of your passing offense and passing defense compared mm-hmm. to an average team. And then neutral field is essentially, it's like, it's like Vegas saying how much you would be favored or how much you'd be an underdog against an average team on a neutral setting. So like based off of everything that Vegas kind of goes into in determining spreads, essentially says like how good is this team in like the most bare bones like neutral settings possible and in these categories compared to just like um compared to every single uh, team in the nfl the Bengals stack up pretty well against fellow three and three teams like only the ravens who they lost to which makes sense the patriots 49ers and buccaneers are higher than them in dv and weighted dv away only the 49ers patriots and buccaneers are higher than them on naya value and only the uh buccaneers Ravens, that's it, are higher than them on a neutral field in terms of how Vegas would see them on a neutral field in terms of the spread. So compared to other three and three teams, I kind of do see the fact that the Bengals are, stand pretty favorably compared to other teams. But I want to get your take on this. Like, how would you, what what teams would you confidently say are better than the Bengals despite the records being the same? Well, this this week says a lot because look who's at the top of the list, Atlanta. Um, so that's going to tell you quite a bit about about some of these things, but. It's it's really odd to me. Number one, the two Super Bowl teams from last year are on this list. They're both of them are three and three. Yeah. And the Rams, the Rams have struggled. I don't know if you've watched a lot of, of Rams terrible. football this year. They they are struggling. The fact that they are three and three is a near miracle. And I know that maybe a little bit foot and mouth with some of the early struggles with the Bengals this year, but I I mean they have just been not a, a fun team to watch. Um Indianapolis, when you see those three reds um across uh, on each of those columns, that tells me that you know you may not be as as legit as you think. Um Bengals already beat Miami. They've got New England on the slate. Tampa Bay and Green Bay, you would say, Oh, well, there, there's your NFC championship. That's the preseason favorite, right? That was the NFC championship. Those two guys going at it. And both of those guys and both of their teams have been pretty big disappointments, right? I mean, Aaron Rodgers has lost his favorite weapon and it shows. 
Um, his heart does not fully seem to be in football. And I think Tom Brady's brain is elsewhere uh, in some regards. So I, you know, those two teams, you would think based on who plays quarterback for them, they should, they should be in the mix at the end there. Um, uh, New England, I, to me, I, that's, that's trying to get my hands around an eel. I can't, I mean, I can't figure that team out at all. Um, you know, they, somehow they're winning games with what Bailey Zappi, or I don't even know if I'm saying this is Zapp, Zappi. I don't, uh, they're, I, I don't know, man. Um, to me though, I do think that when you, when the dust settles, if you're looking in the AFC, I think Baltimore and Cincinnati are going to be the ones that gun for the division. Right. Um, and they'll be in there at, at, in the mix at the end you would think that at least um, maybe Miami's in the mix there just because of the start they got off to depends on what Tua looks like now that he's returning to the lineup. I don't think even with belt, the great Belichick there, I don't think because of their quarterback situation and the limitations from whichever guy they trot out there, I, I don't know that they'll be able to last. Um, you know, they, they may surprise, they surprised me last year, but I, I don't really see them as much for real. I think when you look at the NFC, um, Seattle is, is uh, overachieving right now. I don't really see them s- sticking around. I think San Francisco is a very interesting team. I think they will be tough, and they'll get better as the year goes on. They'll get Elijah Mitchell back in a couple of weeks. Um, and then you got to think that either Aaron Rodgers and or Tom Brady will still have their team in the mix. But, I mean, as I look at it, Baltimore, Cincinnati, Miami on the AFC side – those are the ones that are really sticking out to me. And, and man, uh, 11 teams <laughs> right in the mediocre column here in terms of record is crazy to me, but it is what it is. And there are also teams that are four and two and five and one that I think have arguments of being worse than the Bengals, just depending, just based off of where the Bengals are now and where they're trending to be compared to maybe where those teams maybe are trending downwards or maybe they're not sustainable. But I, I really think the the difference between like their rankings here between excuse me when I butchered that in the beginning defense defense adjusted value over average which is what DVA is DVOA is I don't know what I said in the beginning but it's defense adjusted <laughs> value over average which it, it goes into line with all these other three like how good are you all things considered against an average opponent all the other variables taken out of the equation and some people have argued against the Bengals just be, because they haven't played that much of quality quarterbacks in the first six weeks maybe that kind of lessens what they've done well compared like that's kind of been the thing for most nfl teams this year not every nfl team is good and even the teams with quality quarterbacks are not scoring that much that's just been the trend of the nfl so far but i think the difference in these rankings between the dvoa and the naya compared to neutral field which is how vegas kind of sees these teams i think that's stark to me because like you said Seattle, like they're fun. They have a great offense with Geno Smith, but Vegas doesn't really believe in them to keep this up because they don't really have confidence in Geno Smith being this good over 17 games. The Falcons have a fun offense. We should see that this weekend. But again, they're the Falcons. Only really expected them to have three wins at all this season. They have three wins now. So, you know, they're not really expected to do very much going forward from here. No one really believes in the Colts or the or the Rams. Like their quarterbacks are pretty much toast at this point. Miami's so much of a variable because they have a quarterback who doesn't remember his own name, probably with CTE. And then you have the Patriots and the 49ers, who I think are doing the best with the quarterback situations that they have. But even then, like Vegas doesn't fully trust 
their quarterback situation. So I, I think that is the biggest variable here. When you have teams like the Buccaneers and the Packers who are, are, are underwhelming but are still kind of holding on, like Vegas trusts them because they believe that their quarterbacks are going to get it right. The Ravens have a quarterback that's playing at an MVP level outside of that game against the Giants, which is why they're they're fifth in terms of neutral field. The Bengals being seventh in that category, I think, speaks a lot to, you know, what the what actually matters and what ends up mattering towards the end of the season. They have a quarterback who's playing well right now and who most people trust will continue to play well as the season goes on. So not not only is the whole rest of the team kind of trending upwards, their quarterback is, and I think that matters when you compare. Joe Burrow to these 10 other quarterbacks on these 10 other teams. And we've talked about this before about the Bengals being slow starters to the season, evolving, adapting and changing and growing. It's still very young in a lot of different positions as well. But here's my, here's the thing, John, and you taught you, you kind of touched on it a little bit. You talked about who the quarterbacks, the Bengals have played. And to this point, it's largely been backups. It's largely been, uh, guys who have been in and out as starters, that sort of thing. And then, of course, you know, I, I, you've got the Saints who now have a losing record. Um, you, you beat them and, you know, some of these teams have kind of evened out here on a lot of different fronts with the records and whatnot. But again, you look at it and you go, OK, the Saints win last week in general, missing three or four wideouts in that game. Right. Um, the quarterbacks that they've played some of which they've lost to really Lamar Jackson and a quarter and a half of Tua has been, have, have been the, the most legitimate quarterbacks they've faced this year. So I, as much as I think that Cincinnati will be in the picture for a lot of reasons, one of which also is that their division is kind of a mess in general, them sort of included. Um, but I, you, you kind of look at this and you go, what, how good are the Bengals right now because of who they've played, who they've beaten, who they haven't beaten? Um, I, I think we all, based on last year, think we know how good they can become or how good they can be later in this season. But I still have questions based on who they've played. I know you can play only who's in front of you, but I, I, I don't know, man. I, I just I look at who they've played and who they haven't beaten, and I just I just wonder. I wonder about the viability. Um, not not so much long-term, I guess, just, I, I, again, I, I can't, I can't get a good grasp on this team based on who they've played and how they've performed. And I think in general, most fan bases feel the same way about their teams, like outside of <laughs> yeah. maybe like, honestly, like it's the Eagles, yeah. Chiefs and Bills. Everyone else is almost in the same tier outside of like the really, really terrible teams. Like this has been such a unique year where offenses are trying to figure out how to score against defenses who are just aren't allowing big plays to happen. Like it's just, Hey, we're, we're going to die by a thousand paper cuts. We're not going to die by one giant gash to the belly. Only the chiefs or the bills, or I guess the Eagles are allowed to do that. Right. And you have the Vikings who are five and one, maybe they're not a true five and one team. The giants definitely don't look like a true five and one team. How sustainable is that? The Bengals just find themselves in a, tier a category whatever you want to call it that's grouped with a bunch of other teams are like hey are we actually good or are we we not as good as we think or that we thought we were going into the season it doesn't really matter right now because all these teams are still neck and neck and that matters just in terms of not falling too far behind so that when you do inevitably get your footing which it seems like the Bengals have got their footing at least at this point and they have winnable teams 
on the schedule coming up, like they're in position to advance themselves over other teams who may find out that they're actually not as legit as they thought, and they aren't trending upwards as much as the Bengals are. So while I do agree that it's still a little bit too early to say if the Bengals are going to be legitimate towards you know January and late December, they seem to be on the right track compared to other yeah. teams who are in this boat where it's like, is this really going to keep up? And there's indicators like you've laid out here on the on the sheet that point to them being there towards the end. Again, where the, where the AFC North is at right now, I mean, Cleveland's what two and four, right? Uh, I think Pittsburgh's two and four as well, um, and they they can't they can't get a quarterback in there uh, for for stability purposes at all. Um, and now you've got the Bengals potentially, you know, after starting zero two, they're now they're three and one in their last four, um, and, and the one loss was again by two points at the at the gun there. So. You know, you'd like to think that things are trending and this week, obviously showing a different kind of offense that they're trying to employ. So you're you're thinking that things are heading into the right direction for the Bengals, whereas some of these other teams might might fall off. But um, again, just some of the the losses they did incur earlier this 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 season were they're head scratching. They are for sure, and I mean, wow, the Steelers have two wins against Joe Burrow and Tom Brady. Who would have predicted that? That's weird. Yeah, that's <laughs> weird. That's weird. I, I I would never have predicted that, but hey, it is what it is. Well, let's talk about the the um, the opponent on deck. And by the way, great uh, great research on that one as well, John. And thank you for sharing that sheet with us and and all of that. I just can't. Still can't fathom how many three and three three win teams right now there are in the NFL. But regardless, the Bengals have one of those three and three teams on deck in the Atlanta Falcons coming to town. The Falcons are a bit of a surprise. Uh, when we did our when we did our schedule predictions, we almost laughed at at the Falcons matchup and the roster that they have. Right? I mean, we were almost just like, oh gosh, this is just you know easy win. Blah blah blah. And now they're three and three and they're kind of doing some, some things that are surprising people. And some of the weapons they have are, are, you know, opening some eyes defense is playing pretty well. I mean, they're just kind of doing things to keep them in the mix. And they were actually one bad call away from being four and two, if I remember correctly against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Uh, So they are really surprising people under Arthur Smith there. And now they come to Paycor Stadium against the Bengals team that's seemingly on the upswing as well. So this is a really interesting game coming up. And one, I think that, again, even though it's interconference, may mean a lot towards both team seasons. Yeah, I think, I mean, these teams, aside from just the records, are pretty similar in other ways too. Like Football Outsiders has both of them with 3.4 estimated wins. Like they're pretty similar an overall DVOA, I think the biggest difference, though, is while well, the Bengals' offense has been trying, like Bengals' defense, excuse me, has been solid for the entire season, Falcons can't really say the same. And that was the worry for them entering this year. Like maybe they could have some explosive moments on offense and be pr- generally fun with their with their weaponry. But aside from Grady Jarrett and AJ Terrell, like that defense is just void of talent all throughout the board. Like they're 29th and defensive DVOA this year. I think they're one of the worst teams against the pass in general, but their offense has kept them in games. And I think that does that's just a testament to Arthur Smith reuniting with the former quarterback in Marcus Mariota. Mariota, we, we've talked about like RPOs with Joe Burrow 
but there's only been like a handful of like true RPO examples in the past couple of weeks. Mariota has 79 RPO attempts this year. Like the next closest quarterback, I think, is Justin Fields with like 30 or 40. So that offense is based around something that the Bengals are just yep. starting to implement, which I think is a interesting talking point, Anthony. Like because the Bengals are trying to implement those more often in their scheme, it may give them not an upper hand, but it gives them more experience to defend what they can expect out of this Falcons offense. Because, like you mentioned, very diverse running game. They have a wide receiver at running back in Cordell, Cordell Patterson, who is really good at his job, mind you. And an offensive line that I think not it's not over overachieving, but I feel like they found a way to maximize the strengths of that offensive line. They're not too talented necessarily, but they're just getting the job done. They're, I think they're playing up to their talent level and almost exceeding it to a certain point. So they definitely have an offense where, you know, they, they don't like to push the ball down the field too much, even though they have Drake London and, and uh, Kyle Pitts. So you would think that that would be more of a prominent thing, but I think they're playing to Mariota's strengths and that's keeping him as a starter instead of Desmond Ritter, who was drafted there. That's so this is where I struggle with um, a possible, you know, last week, the Bengals defense, whether it was Taysom Hill, Avin Kamara, uh, you know, uh, any of them, Mark Ingram running the football, they struggled. I mean, 228 yards, I think, was the, was the net rushing yards that they had against the Bengals. And they did it every kind of which way. All those players had, um, you know, different different impacts in the game. And But yet, against the Ravens, the, we've talked about this, even though they lost a couple of weeks ago to them, they have a little bit of a formula against a mobile quarterback, one who likes to run and do different things, dance around in the pocket, et cetera. Now, I waver on this, John. Might the Bengals, between seeing a, I don't want to call it a similar offense, but seeing some gadget-type runs, some quarterback runs, and, and that sort of thing that they saw against the Saints, and also having a modicum of, of success against Lamar Jackson, at least statistically speaking, over the last handful of games, might that better prepare them this week against this team, the Falcons, and what they like to do on offense? Or is the amount of rushing yards they let up last week against the Saints, is that the indicator that this is going to be a struggle on defense? And, oh, by the way, all the injuries we mentioned last week. Yeah, I think, like, even if the Bengals' rush defense was was playing at their level, I think Patterson in that scheme is still something where the Falcons can be relatively confident. Like some, sometimes, good players are good players, and I think that's the that was the case of Alvin Kamara last week, and that's probably the case with Cordero Patterson in this game. But the the difference is, and the the, the boys at Locked On, like, I think, touched on this as well in their in their game recap. Like if Trent Taylor doesn't fumble that pump return. The game script for the Saints probably changes, and they aren't able to go, you know, full balls to the wall with their run game and have as much success right. as they did. Maybe they're maybe they fall behind. I feel like that that can't that can't necessarily happen in this game. And yes, Cordero Patterson was injured, but I think he's working his way back to um to fully health to health, and maybe will play in this game. Or maybe I'm just completely talking on my butt there. But regardless, like the Falcons can run the ball and they're committed to running the ball. Like no no other team runs the ball as much as the Falcons, and they're pretty damn efficient in doing so. So I, I think 
with where the Bengals run defense is now, the fact that they have injuries up there, even if Logan Wilson plays, it doesn't play like it's going to be an advantage for the Falcons, I would say. And it's just a matter of if the Bengals can get out into a situation where they're not falling behind and they're not giving the Falcons just a comfortable lead to do what they want to do offensively, that will probably be the difference in the game because then again, Marcus Mariota, who has pushed the ball down the field at, at times, I think he has the third highest off or poor throw percentage in the league, like only behind like Justin Fields and one other one other player. So when he has pushed the ball down the field, it hasn't really been pretty, and that's maybe just what Mariota is at this moment. And that is a chance for the Bengals defense to capitalize on turnovers. Like they didn't really have success against the Saints last week, but in the in the situations where the Falcons are in obvious passing downs and they're not able to lean on that diverse running game that's when the Bengals defense has to step up and do better than what they did last week because even if Andy Dalton didn't play particularly well in that game there was still a handful of third downs where you know he thread the needle on some tight windows and the Bengals defense just couldn't make those plays plays when they needed to so you know the, the defense definitely needs to step up in that regard and I think they're going to give up some yards on the ground like that's just inevitable Patterson is on IR until I think week nine. So okay. he's, he's out, but it's uh Tyler. Is it Algier or Al, Algier? I don't know. Yeah. Uh, he's, he's getting 4.4 yards a pop. Mariota is obviously doing, doing some effective things there. They've got also got Caleb Huntley, I think, and Damian Williams in the mix. Williams also a guy I think they can use in the, in the passing game too. So um, yeah, I mean, they've got, Got it. That's the thing, though. When you when you look at whether it's Patterson or the names that I mentioned, those aren't uh, Patterson's talented, no doubt. But I mean, he's been largely a gadget guy, a kickoff return guy, punt return guy, and, and you know, a, a bit of an effective running back. These aren't you know the Derrick Henrys, you know, the the star star running backs of the league necessarily. Yet they are getting high yards per carry and they're they're showing effectiveness and then you know just the 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 shell game they play so to speak with Mariota the RPO thing where you you play a little bit of a guessing game on defense right and then when you have potentially some inexperienced defenders on the Bengals side that are coming in for guys that are that are injured that hurts um so I, I'm interested to see how the Bengals step up this week against the, the Falcons run game. Matthew Grundy mentioned, I, I love the way Sam Hubbard has been playing this year. He hasn't closed the gap and got home often, but he's been solid at causing enough pressure to disrupt plays. He's also been great playing contain and, um, you know, doing some things on the edge in the run game to make sure that things don't explode, uh, you know, around him. So, you know, he's going to be a key player, which sounds odd for an edge guy, but he's going to be a key guy with Mario to this RPO system this week as well. And I, and I think the fact that the Bengals, and we kind of touched on this earlier, like the fact that their offense is now kind of based out of this one type look where it's either a run or a pass out of these single looks, like that should help them prepare for this offense because that's that's largely just what the Falcons' offense is. And maybe I should research a little bit more. That was, that was a bad gap on me on Patterson, but <laughs> like, no. Hey, like I've had worse. Don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah, Falcons' offense is – like it's just it's not great timing i guess for the Bengals defense and yeah. that might just be the, the theme of this game like it's just going to come down to can the Bengals offense continue this growth that they have right now and, and keep the falcons out of that game script that they want to be in and maybe the falcons won't falcons won't have a choice maybe they're kind of 
Like that that's just what their identity is and it's hard for them to deviate off of that and maybe they'll be forced to use Kyle Pitts in, in more ways than they have been. I know that he's been underutilized compared to what the expectation was, but Drake London, another USC Trojan, I think he's PFF's like fifth highest graded receiver. He's been showing out in the situations where he's been used, so that's another matchup to watch. Like how much can the can the Bengals limit their only real star receiver on the boundary? Like it, it's it feels like it's mostly just been the middle of the field for them, and that might be where the Bengals are most vulnerable. So nice segue here because someone had asked earlier as well. Uh, I'm trying to find the comment here in the live chat, but unfortunately I can't. But basically it was someone who – here it is right here, Robert Obrecht. Um, who do you guys see trying to cover Kyle Pitts this Sunday? Flowers. So will how will the Bengals' defensive backs hold up against – Kyle Pitts, Drake London, these guys who are massive. Um, the Bengals defensive backs, albeit Eli Apple had about a rough two to two and a half quarters last week against the pass, but he's largely still played his best NFL football with the Bengals again this year for the most part. Awuzier is not letting anybody get, get stuff on him here for the most part. And then, of course, you've got Von Bell, who had three interceptions in a matter of a handful of weeks. Bates still a little quiet, but I mean, overall, the Bengals secondary and let's throw Mike Hilton in there as well. Effective guys, but they are not, you know, the Richard Sherman height wise type of guys. Right. I mean, they're 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 good size. They're athletic. They got speed, all of that. But again, we're talking about Pitts and London, who are what, six, five, six, six. So they're going to need flowers is up there in, in height and size a bit because he is of that Seattle Seahawk coveted mold uh, still I mean they're going to need size they're going to need physicality against these guys um, might it be Davis Gaither playing in space a little bit against uh, against Pitts and doing some things there I don't know but they're going to need to kind of get creative this week I think to just avoid as many mismatches as possible with those two guys and their size well I think this is like the the tricky thing about defending the Falcons because Again, when when they base a lot of their things off of RPOs, where it could be a run or it could be a pass on any given down, it's hard for defenses to put in different personnel where they have to account for the fact that they don't really know if it's a, if it's a pass or a run in in those certain personnel packages that they're going up against. So, in theory, like having Trey Flowers out there just following around Kyle Pitts is nice. But do you want Trey Flowers as one of your box defenders against the run? Probably not. Like that's not where he thrives in. So. It's interesting to me how against the Ravens, like they had Chidabe Wuzie matching up with Mark Andrews more than they had Trey Flowers in that sense. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. It, it was something that we didn't really expect. And, you know, obviously Trey Flowers is brought back for roles of that nature. But I feel like in obvious passing situations, you're going to see Flowers, you know, follow Pitts around. It's, no, it's worth noting that Kyle Pitts has had 200 some snaps this year, 86 as an inline tight end, 67 as a slot receiver, 65 out wide like maybe maybe if he's out wide that's that's, in college exactly like maybe that's when a is out there out wide maybe they have mike hilton match up with him in the slot maybe they have trey flowers kind of as an overhang defender when he's uh, attached to the line of scrimmage there i feel like with with what the falcons do offensively though it's hard for the Bengals to get in um subs and and you know personnel groupings um compared to like what they would against other offenses where they're a little bit less predictable so with with this particular matchup like Kyle Pitts poses an interesting variable because I don't know how often the Bengals are going to be able to get their personnel in and out there based off of what they think the play is going to be. 
Yeah, and then you've got our, our buddy Robert asking, would they consider Dax Hill on him? I don't know if they're going to necessarily consider him on him per se, but we may see a little bit more of Dax Hill. And then I think, you know, he had he had a couple of flashed a couple of nice moments as well uh, this last week against the Saints. Uh, was it you who put up the rookie report, John, on Cincy Jungle talking about yep. that a little bit? Yeah. Um, you liked what you saw out of him on on some limited snaps this week. Yeah, I mean, he almost won them the game at the very end. Like that was one of his right. three snaps as the as the deep safety there, and that that was range. Like, as soon as he saw Andy uh, target Callaway towards the sideline, like he bursted down down the line there and, and almost got to the ball, and I think it was inches away from the interception. So he's mainly been as that free safety, like every so often when he gets in the game, but he's been used all over the place. So if there's there's a week for him to be used a little bit more. Maybe it's this one when they have interesting matchups to get to against these receivers, but I'm not counting on him matching up with Kyle Pitts because that is a very favorable size advantage for the Falcons. Yeah. Um, he is being, even though he's getting a lot of snaps, he has not been uh, putting up the numbers that a lot of people anticipate, and that is not necessarily his fault. That's uh, a lot of other factors at play there. But, John... How do you see this one? Who, who's kind of the key? Who are the key players, the key matchups this week? And how do you see this one playing out in your eyes as we start to close things up here? So I think this game is going to be a little bit similar to the one we just saw. And it's not it's not me saying that, you know, the Bengals are going to come out of the game flat or like their defense is going to give up another 200 yards rushing. I, I do feel like the Falcons are going to have some success on the ground, though. I I, I don't think that's that's avoidable if you're if you're the Bengals considering their their injury issues and their personal issues right now on defense it's just something that they have to to work through and based off of how successful the Falcons have been running the ball and how dedicated they are to doing so like this is just seems like a not so ideal matchup for their defense so I, I feel like the over is going to hit in this game the over under is 47 and a half which is a ton for this season considering the average total points per game has been like 43. So I do feel like the over is going to hit. I feel like the Falcons are going to get north, just north of 20 points. But on the other side of things, I feel like the Bengals offense shouldn't have issues keeping up what they started last week against the Saints, being home, trying to get back over 500, knowing that they have a divisional rival on tap. It might almost be considered like a trap game in that sense if they're thinking about Cleveland too much. But I feel like the Falcons defense just doesn't really have the answers to stop the Bengals offense. And whatever the Falcons offense can do, I feel like the Bengals offense can do a little bit better. So I'm going to go 27-20 Bengals. I see this as either going to be a cruise control game for the Bengals where they, you know, have a comfortable lead and they just kind of coast to the finish line, or it's going to be one of those maddening games, like you said, like last week where it's like, man, are they going to actually win this thing? Are they not? What's what's happening here? Um, And so I tend to actually believe it's going to be the latter, particularly with the injuries that they are, dealing with at this point in time on defense and and Higgins still not being potentially up to a hundred percent. So um I, I there's a there's a commenter on Cincy Jungle and he has called me out. I guess I don't I don't pick whether it's through our uh what's the what's the app that we use tally site whether it's through tally site when we pick games or I guess either on our show or whatever I don't pick the Bengals often enough and he said that he would listen to the show more often if I picked the Bengals. So Beverly Hills who day this is for you I'm going to take the Bengals this week I don't know how I feel in terms about how many points they will win by so I will say um I'll say 31 24 
Ooh. Bengals. Um, I'll say 31-24 Bengals, and maybe the Falcons make it interesting late, have the ball last, that sort of thing. Um, but uh, that's that's how I see it playing out. I, I will predict the Bengals win this week. They are at home. They don't leave the state of Ohio until was it November? Um, yeah. They've got you know two home games and a, and a, Cle- a game in Cleveland. So um, I want to make a slight amendment real quick to my prediction because the Falcons that- are six and zero against the spread, and the spread is six and a half. <laughs> So I'm going to say Falcons 21, Bengals 27. They cover. Yeah, one guy I didn't say a key guy to to look for, but one guy I wanted to say that is having a you know he's doing some things on their defense. I know their defense is is struggling a bit, but um, this guy right here, uh, Arnold. Oh man, uh, Arnold E. I'll just say that. Uh, I, I, I don't know if I said Epiketti. I think we Epiketti. There you go, Yeah, uh, he ranks among rookie edge rushers from week six, five pressures, 81.2 overall grade last week and a 26% pass rush win rate. Jonah, Jonah Williams still dealing with a dislocated knee. Lowe Collins who's working his way back from that back injury, but you know, he, he's not fully hundred percent. Like they, they showed progress against the saints, but at Keddy, man, like he's athletic as hell. He, yeah, he had some nice stats from last week. And when you have what I was saying, when you have uh, Leo Collins dealing with a back issue. And then, of course, um, you've got uh, Jonah Williams with his knee issues and whatnot. That's a guy to, to definitely watch. So keep an eye out for him. That being said, despite the awkward pause there, let's go. And yes, nice save. You, you, you're this saver. John, <laughs> we're going to do uh, trivia again. Mm-hmm. One one for you and one for the one for the listeners, we will get uh, last week's we're, – we're getting last week's winner, uh, their goodies here. We, we've got some small goodies for this week's winner, but we'll, we'll start with you, and then we'll drop the mic and get out of here. Chapter, we've got origins in history, numbers game, calling the signals between the tackles, catching the ball, trench warfare, no air zone, Super Bowl shuffle, draft day, let's make a deal, writing the record book. You pick one for you, one topic for you and one for the listeners, and you can go first on your question. So I feel like as someone who loves the trenches, I got to go trench warfare for me, and then we'll give the listeners uh, the, the the draft day uh, section. Okay, draft day was... Okay, gotcha, chapter six. All right, so let's... Uh... Some of these are too easy for you. Uh, let's see too here. Let's, let's go with this one. Friend of the show, Anthony Munoz. And I say that proudly that he is friend of yeah. the show. How many touchdown passes? He told us this on the air years oh, ago. Did. How many touchdown passes did Anthony Munoz catch in his career with the Bengals? Uh, and your multiple choice, anywhere from one through four. One, two, three, or four. How many did he catch? Oh, I would have guessed higher than that. Um, I thought he was up there with Vrabel. Let's see here. It's more than one. I'll, I'll, I know that for a fact. Yeah, it is more than one. I, I would... Venture to say it's more than two, so it's between three and four. I'm, I'm, I'm gonna go four. I think it's four. Yeah, you're right. Four. Let's go. Ding, ding, ding. John gets <laughs> gets the answer. Good job. Good job. <laughs> go back and check out that the the interviews we've had with Anthony Munoz. There's been a few of them. He uh, that he that that's almost like his badge of honor. It's not the Hall of Fame. It's not the Ring of Honor. It's not all the Pro Bowls. It's it's you know, <laughs> it's a, it's a four touchdown catches that he had here and you said for the others draft day correct and mm-hmm. this is going to be for a small prize for well not small i don't know just a, a giveaway 
Um, all right, draft day. This is going to be for the listeners on live live chat listeners, whether you're on YouTube or Facebook, Twitter. I'm sorry, I don't know if we have a chat live chat function there, so you'll you can still watch on Twitter. I love that you watch on Twitter, but you may need if you want to participate in this, you got to go here. Um, all right, let's go. Do you want to do a multiple choice or true false for him? Let's give him a let's give him a true false. Okay. Who was not okay? This is for the listeners. Who was not one of the three players the Bengals drafted in the first round in 84 before finally picking Boomer Esiason in the second round? Who was not one of the three players the Bengals drafted in the first round of the 1984 draft before finally picking Boomer Esiason in the second round? A, Brian Blados. B, Ricky Hunley. C, Stanford Jennings. D, Pete Koch. And John, are you are you able to see the comments? I am able to see the comments. We have no answers as of yet. We have a prediction from Brandon Hooday or 85, 30 to 23 Bengals. Thank you for checking in. We have Tim Grubbs guessing A. And A would be Brian Blados. Okay. Uh, do we have any other? We have Adam Casagrande guessing B. Okay. Robert Hall guessing D. <laughs> okay. Uh, I'm going to... Let's see here. Sounds like no one has guessed the right answer yet. That, that, I, I will give you a hint that of the <laughs> three of the four letters that have been guessed are not correct. So whoever guessed it, there That's we quite go. The hit. Adam, it looks like, oh, wait, we've got, we've got it. Boom, boom. Uh, looks like Dan the man, maybe. Well, yeah, because well, Adam guessed twice. Like he doesn't get two guesses. Oh, oh no, okay. It, it, oh, it's, it's got to be Dan. Oh, yeah. Okay. Then yeah, Dan, Dan, Stan, Stan, uh, Oh no! Well, he said Stanley. What did he get it wrong? Well, did he mean Stanford? Stanford Jennings? We're gonna we're gonna maybe say Stanford. Well, you didn't say a Stanley, right? Oh, no, I said Stanford. Stanford Jennings. Yeah, yeah. So I'm assuming he's yeah. He he meant Stanford, right? Okay, we're gonna give him that one. We're gonna yeah. and Dan the man's uh, awesome. So we're gonna we're gonna give him that one. Dan, send us either DM us via Twitter or send an email to the obinsider at gmail.com. Do not leave your address in the live chat for the love of God. Do not do that. Um, and uh, send us an address and we'll get you we'll get you something for that. I don't want any more dead air, so we're gonna we're gonna do that. Uh, I we had a super chat here trying to go back and find that from. Of course, Mr. Whisper. Want to get to that one? Batchy held up well last year, but pardon me wants to see Dax Hill slip back into the hybrid role he played in college. We'll see if Bocce's the guy that they, uh, you know, get, gets a lot of time now with, with Logan Wilson out there. Um, they're going to have to kind of get creative with that. Um, and then they also have Clay Johnson on the roster as well, mm -hmm. right? So, um, you know, th th both of those guys may may or may not get some time, right? Yeah, I just – I I'm not sure about Dax Hill this week just because of how much they're expecting to defend the run. It's almost like – Joseph Asai is going to be in that same boat where Asai has mainly just been a in interior pass rusher, but like how many obvious third down situations are you going to have where the Falcons have to drop back and pass? Like that would be ideal for the Bengals to be in those situations, but you know the Falcons are doing a good job of keeping ahead of the chains, and you might not see much of Asai, and definitely not Dax Hill, just because. I mean, even in games where they're facing a lot of passive offenses, he's just not being trusted out there with snaps, so. I, I, I just don't see it this week, unfortunately. Mr. Whisper, we are going to probably, I mean, we're giving away stuff for the Pollock Family Foundation donors and um, 
you that will go to the Pollock Family Foundation. They are giving away some cool stuff as well. David Pollock signed Georgia helmets. If you do direct uh, donations to the foundation, or if you go to the givesendgo.com slash Pollock Family Foundation, we've got our own slate of gifts we'll be giving out, but they've got some cool stuff. They've even got like Traeger grills and stuff that the foundation's giving out to donors. So go check that out. Um, but we, it, we will, uh, we're going to have to do something nice for Mr. Whisper. He donates every, every week, man. Good Lord. Um, appreciate that. Appreciate that. Um, all right, let's drop the mic and get out of here. We've gone a little long. What do you got for us, John? Nothing much. Just wanted to plug our, our friends at Bengal Brews for their show tomorrow. Uh, Bridget Jankars, who's my co-host mm-hmm. on DNH, is joining Ty- Tyler Maynarding and Brandon Seho to talk a little bit about, about mental health. So I, I feel like that's that's going to be a quality cool. show to watch, to tune in tomorrow at 7 p.m. Eastern time on Thursday. So if you're listening to this after the fact, maybe it's about to be 7 p.m. on Thursday night, or maybe it's... Friday when you're listening to this, so if you haven't checked it out already, check it out now. So definitely check out Bridget, who I think is recovering from food poisoning after being in New Orleans. So hopefully you're doing well, Bridget. Oof. Oof. Yeah, that's not fun. And uh, Dale, our guy Dale Altman, who uh, co- co-heads that Bengals and Brew show with with the Orange Arrow. Uh, Dale's been kind of going through some stuff, and our thoughts are with you, buddy, uh, for sure. Good show. Fun show. I think we've both been on it. I, I've been on it. Yep. I think you have as well. So good guys, of course. So yeah, check that one out for sure. Mine is the announcement and we are working on getting this guy on the show next week, courtesy of Caesar Sportsbook. That of course is former ESPN sports anchor, Trey Wingo and current Caesar Sportsbook uh, personality. Um I don't. I forget his official title. It's it's awesome. But I had a cr- great opportunity to talk to him in Las Vegas during the NFL draft, and we were approached to get him on the program again. And I said, "Hell yeah, we're going to get Dre Wingo on." So look for that next week. We're going to talk about the Bengals. We're going to talk about uh, maybe this Falcons game, but of course also the the next game on tap as well. So. Um, we're going to talk about a lot of different things as well as the NFL landscape. So we are excited about that. You won't want to miss that interview with Trey Wingo. Again, you know that he is an iconic guy with ESPN and now with Caesar Sportsbook. He does stuff with like Kenny Mayne now over at Caesars and stuff. So uh, pretty cool stuff. I'm pretty, pretty excited about that. Yeah, he works hand in hand with our former boss, Rebecca Toback, who mm-hmm. I believe yeah. uh, has, a, has a role with all of them. So I always watch your Instagram stories and it's like behind the scenes content with Trey doing stuff. And from everything that she's told me about him, he's a phenomenal guy to work with. So I can't wait to have him on the show. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Appreciate everybody tuning in. Appreciate you all participating in the trivia. We'll do more. We'll have little giveaways and whatnot um, as we continue to do that. But John, have a good week, my friend. I hope that our predictions are correct. We'll have more this week, but, uh, We'll we'll have to see how those Bengals treat us this week after winning this last week. Watch out for Cordero Patterson. He might <laughs> take care, everybody. Support for this podcast came from SAS. Data is everything. And now everything is data. 
which means more to process, more to analyze. And now more than ever, speed to answers matters. So how do you produce those answers as fast as the world produces data? With SAS VIA, the quickest way from a billion points of data to a point of view. It's a more productive data and AI platform that helps you get more done. Learn more today at sas.com slash VIYA. From data privacy to the future of TV, retail media, and beyond, the world of digital marketing is constantly in flux. So how can you keep up? Well, The Current Report is there for you. Each week, marketing leaders on the cutting edge give you the latest insight. So if it's creating a buzz, they'll be talking about it. Subscribe to The Current Report wherever you get your podcasts.